today came from the mouths of 11 very anxious, uneasy, sorrowful men in an upper room in Jerusalem on the night before Jesus was crucified. So the question came from 11 anxious, sorrowful men and one cold-hearted betrayer. The question is asked in the upper room of a house, a secret location actually, somewhere in Jerusalem, where Jesus of Nazareth was eating one last meal with his disciples. The question came off the heels of a statement Jesus made that just basically paralyzed the room. One of you is going to betray me. Could you imagine being in a room, <laughs> enjoying a meal, right, with Jesus, and he drops that bombshell? And as the disciples are trying to recover, they begin to ask, is it I, Lord? You get it? Gut-wrenching, like, it's not me, is it, right? I mean, it's like, I don't even really want to know the answer, but uh, I got to ask the question. So we're going to get there, right? We're going to get to the upper room. There was a purpose. Jesus did it that way. There was a purpose for the sequence of events that led to that paralyzing kind of question. Um, and it's really important that we build context, right? It's really important before we just jump in to any passage of the Bible that we, we grasp what, what was going on before it, what, what was leading up to this, you know, what took place um, to, to bring us there. And it's really important to do that. And we're going to do that today. Well, we know probably everyone in this room knows that that was the Last Supper, right? That was the upper room they were having the Last Supper. So that would have been towards the end of Passion Week where Jesus came riding in on a donkey earlier that week, and everyone's singing Hosanna, right? And every, he's a rock star at that point, right? And then slowly but surely, as he continues to teach, um, and people are like, what? And I'm not sure about this. This isn't, this guy's really not really doing what I thought he was going to do. And then as you get to the end of the week, uh, there was a whole different vibe going on with Jesus. And by the time we get to the upper room, they're like huddled, right? They're like, no one can find us. They're like afraid because the whole town's kind of going crazy. I mean, the, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, they're all out to get them. I mean, it's, it's a difficult scene. So I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be reading in verse 17, but I want to look at the first 16 verses of that chapter to kind of build the context, kind of build up what's going to happen in the room that night. And maybe if we do that, it's so important that we do that. Because if we can understand the events leading up to the upper room, then I'm sure that we can grasp the magnitude of what was going on in the room that, that night and the reason why Jesus did what he did to get the response out of the disciples. So if you look at Matthew chapter 26, it's, about, it's on Wednesday. Most scholars agree that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 is sometime around Wednesday. And um, the first thing that pops out at, you, out at you is that Jesus is in total control of everything that's happening. I guess you could say that Jesus was in total control of everything that ever happened to him because he was on a mission from the day he was born. He was on a mission before. He was on a mission all the way through the Old Testament. 
It was God's redemptive plan. And now, now that he's here and now that he's doing his ministry and living his perfect sinless life on earth, that mission and that ministry is about to culminate in the death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of the world. He was in control of every single detail, every single event, every relationship, every dialogue, everything. God's in sovereign control. And the first thing that you see at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26 is that he had been telling his disciples, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna get handed over. I'm gonna be delivered up to be crucified. He's been telling him that for a long time now. And, and uh, at one point, Peter's like, that ain't gonna happen, man. No, 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 that's not a good plan, right? You're not gonna die. It's all gonna be great. You're gonna fix everything and we're gonna all have really cool places to live and cars and everything. No, no, you're not gonna die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the things of God. Now, of all the things that Jesus could say to you, get behind me, Satan, is probably not anywhere on the list of things that you want him to say. But Peter did not have in mind the things of God. Why? Because Jesus was on a mission to die for the sins of the world. And he'd been telling them, I'm going to be handed over to evil men. And they're going to kill me, but it's okay. I'm going to rise again, man. Don't worry about it. And so he tells them again on Wednesday, two days before the Passover, that he's going to die and he's going to be handed over. You know, the interesting thing is, while that was going on, or sometime while that was going on, and Jesus was in control of that, there's a bunch of guys somewhere plotting to kill Jesus, right? He's even in control of that. The chief priests and the elders were plotting. They'd had enough of Jesus, all right? Enough is enough. Okay, we can't let this guy keep, keep teaching. I mean, he's just making us look bad. And no, no, no. They're plotting to figure out how they can arrest and kill Jesus, right? Now, they'd wanted to kill him for quite some time right? But they couldn't. In fact, a lot of people tried to kill Jesus from the day he was born, right? A lot of people tried to kill Jesus. At one point, remember the story where they, he, he drops a bomb? At one point, and people were so offended that they kind of pushed in a crowd and led him off to a cliff, and he's standing there on the cliff, and boom, the crowd opens up and pew. It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. The, the irony of ironies is that the chief priests and the elders were plotting to arrest and kill Jesus, but they're like, okay, we can't do it now because it's Passover week and there's like two million people in town, right? We'll cause an uproar. We can't do it now, so we'll wait. The irony of ironies they couldn't do it when they wanted to do it, but when they didn't want to do it, they were going to do it. God was in control of everything. Because Judas shows up at their door, right? Hey, it's Judas. What do you guys give me if I hand him over? They're like, what? What a sweet opportunity. So new game plan. Let's take him out at the first opportunity. They don't care anymore about the crowd. Here they got a golden, sweet opportunity one of his own is going to sell him out. They're like, oh, no, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, 30 pieces 
apparently was the price for Judas to sell out Jesus Christ. He was even in control of those who were plotting to kill him. And then we're at about Wednesday night. And Jesus is reclined in a little town called Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. He's in the house of, of a guy named Simon. He was a leper. Perhaps Jesus had healed him, not sure, but he's reclining at Simon's house. And in a beautiful act of worship, we know that it was Mary, a woman. We know that it was Mary came in and poured a very expensive ointment over Jesus. Why did Jesus allow her to do that? Because he knew he was gonna die. And that ointment was preparing his body for burial. He's in charge of everything. And I just wanna pause for a second and, and ask you to kind of think about that for a minute. I mean, if he's in charge of all of that, Jesus Christ, was in charge of his own destiny, his own history. He's also in charge of ours. And I just wonder if that changes the way we look at our life, especially the events of our life. Because sometimes we can't always see that God is in control. Sometimes it doesn't look like God is in control. Sometimes it looks like things are out of control. Sometimes it feels like everything's out of control. And I just want to tell you that even though it looks that way and feels that way sometimes, God has a purpose for everything. He had a purpose for every single event leading up to the Last Supper. And as we're going to see here in a minute, he had a purpose for every single thing that went on in the Last Supper. And I just wonder if the fact that Jesus is Lord and Master of history, his and ours, and that he accomplishes redemptive purposes, even if we don't see when, where, or how. I just wonder if that makes a difference in the way that we pray, right? I mean, I've basically stopped asking Jesus for stuff because, I mean, I don't even know what I need. I don't trust myself. I mean, I, I, I've been around, I've been with God long enough to know, I'm just like, what do you think? I mean, here I am, here's where we are, here's the situation that I'm in right now, what do you wanna do? I don't know what we should do, what do you wanna do? What do you think I should do? I wanna do what you want me to do, I wanna do your will. I mean, I chase after idols. You know, I get, I go wayward, I don't, I don't, I just wanna know what he wants because he's in control. And I wonder if it changes the way that we pray. I wonder if it changes the way that we plan. (laughs) If we plan, the way we plan our careers, the way we plan things. God is in control. He's in absolute control. So it's Thursday now. And Thursday's a big day in Jerusalem. It's a big day. I'm gonna pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. 
I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It's Thursday, obviously the day before Friday. That's going to be a pretty significant day, right? They're preparing the Passover. What's that all about? What's the first day of unleavened bread? So the Passover or the festival or the feast of unleavened bread was about as big of a deal to a Jew as you could get. I mean, if Easter is the biggest deal for a Christian because we celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and celebrate the redemption that's only found in him, and that's a big deal for Christians, then the Passover and this feast was a, the big deal where they celebrated the redemption of God passing over the Israelites way back in Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look at that. So that's what two million people are doing in Jerusalem, right? Every year. This was the thing. This was the big deal. They're pilgriming from all over. They're coming into town to, to participate in this festival, this feast of unleavened bread. And the reason why the Bible says on, on chapter 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the reason that was significant, this feast was eight days, but the first day was super important because that was the day they were going to celebrate the Passover meal. Big deal. Big deal. I want to read for you that story, if that's okay. Part of the celebration that the families would have is the, 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 usually the dad or the head of the household would tell this story, right? And this is the story that he would tell. This is what they were commemorating. This is what they were remembering. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Uh, you know the, the setup for this, right? The Israelites are in bondage to the Egyptians. The, the Pharaoh has been abusing and just physically incredible abuse and just using them in terrible, immoral, and just horrible ways. And they were crying out to God for deliverance. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, man, let, let my people go, man, or you're going to suffer the consequences. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, right. So one by one, the plagues came in. One after another after another. Pharaoh, reluctant, wouldn't do it. Hard heart, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. The, the plagues get intense, more intense, more intense, more intense. He's still stubborn, won't let him go, won't let him go. And then God says to Moses, I'm going to send one more plague, man. He's going to let him go after this one. It's the last one I'm going to send, and after that he's going to let him go. We pick up that story in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see that blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. No wonder this is a big day, right? For a Jew, for an Israelite. This is a big day. Millions of people are going to celebrate this Passover feast. So no wonder the disciples asked Jesus, hey, where do you want us to, uh, everyone's kind of looking for us, right? Where are we going to celebrate the Passover? And Jesus being in charge of everything told him to go find a guy and he's going to lead you to a room. Go find a guy? <laughs> go find a guy? There's two million people in town. We know in one of the other gospels that Jesus told the disciples he's going to be carrying a, a jar of water. Oh, well, that helps. Well, it helps if you know that men did not carry jars of water. That was either a slave or a, a woman's job. It would have been the equivalent of Jesus saying, go to the mall and find a guy with a red purse. Oh, okay. So that narrows it down a little bit, right? So they did. And to prepare for the Passover, the disciples, we also know from the other gospels that it was Peter and John. So they're getting all this stuff done and what they would have had to have done according to Exodus chapter 12, they would have had to chose, choose a lamb. And, and part of this ceremony, this is a big deal with families, right? They would all go as a family and pick a lamb like a couple of days earlier and then they would bring it home. I know, I know, right? We're gonna bring the lamb home and then kill it? I mean, that's kind of weird. But anyway, that's what they did. They brought it home with them, and then on Thursday, they would bring it back to the temple and have the priests slaughter and prepare the lamb for the meal. So Peter and John are doing all this. They got everything done. They found the guy with the red purse, or I'm, I'm sorry, the jar of water. <laughs> And they prepared the lamb. Interestingly enough, uh, the way this ceremony would go down in a family, they would all be gathered together. There was a lot of key events. The, the, the head of the household, usually the dad, I guess, would give thanks. And he would break the bread. And they would drink the wine. Does all this sound familiar? 
And a boy would have been chosen. Happened every year. A boy would have been chosen. And he goes, Dad, Dad. I mean, it's not like he didn't know the answer to this, but a, a boy would have said, why are we doing this? And the dad would read the Exodus story. This is why we're doing it, son. Because our God is a redeeming God. And he protects us. And we're safe with him. The disciples are preparing all this stuff. Interesting when you think about how many Passover celebrations must have taken place from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. At least 1,400. 1,400 years, 1,400 celebrations. Who knows how many lambs were sacrificed, right? In those 1,400 years. I mean, you do the math. There's one lamb for every, like, 10 people, and there's two, there's two million people. I mean, you do the math. But I need to tell you guys this, that all the blood of those lambs over 1,400 years combined could not cleanse a human heart because the blood of animals is not sufficient to atone for sin. It was just a memorial but this day was going to be different. This was the last lamb that was ever going to need to be sacrificed. It was the lamb of God whose blood was pure, whose sacrifice was acceptable to God, able to atone for your sins and mine. And Jesus was in charge of it all. He wanted to be sure that the moment he died, the time that he died, was the time when the sacrificial lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem. That was part of his plan. And even the instructions on what to say to the guy with the house reveals another piece of God's sovereign plan. Jesus said to the disciples to tell them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. It was, God, it was part of God's redemptive plan. It was necessary for Jesus to keep the Passovers with his disciples at this particular time. This was going to be his last opportunity to teach his disciples, his last time to have intimate fellowship with his disciples. But more important than that, why was this the time? Why was it important? What was going on? What was significant? Significant. It was also the time for the Passover supper of the Old Testament, which was marked by the shedding of lamb's blood, to be transformed into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant, which would be marked by the shedding of his own blood. This was significant, a turning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's a big deal. We are all sitting and enjoying and participating in the blessings and everything going on in the New Covenant. This was the moment, this was the time when that shift took place and Jesus was in charge of it all in that upper room that night. Every single detail, every single event. So Jesus organized the meal that would mark a new Passover, a new covenant, the crown of God's redemption. So here we are in the upper room and Jesus is in complete control. 
They've been going on. They've been eating this meal. They've been reclining at this table. Jesus obviously would assume he was the head of the household. Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe one of the disciples said, hey, Jesus, tell us the old story, man. Tell us the Exodus story. Maybe he did, right? I mean, it was part of the tradition. Maybe Jesus told the Exodus 12 story and the whole time he's talking about himself. He's the lamb. He's the lamb in the story. And I'm not sure the disciples grasped that at that moment. I so want us to grasp that this morning. And at some point in the middle of all that, Jesus basically paralyzes the room and makes a statement that sends a shockwave through the upper room that night. As they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I was reading that, preparing, and I was thinking to myself, well, he obviously knew who it was, right? He obviously knew it was Judas. I mean, why didn't he just go, been a great night, guys, but Judas here sold me out. And um, he's, gonna, he's got stuff to do, so we're going to dismiss Judas. And You guys are fine, though. Judas is a loser. Why did he say one of you guys is going to betray me? Because the Bible goes on to say that the disciples were very sorrowful, right? They're like, what? I mean, that word sorrowful means, I mean, just gut-wrenching grief, sadness. Actually, the term means that they were, grief was caused on them. They were affected with sadness and they were thrown into sorrow. I mean, Jesus did it on purpose. Knowing who it was that would betray him, he said, one of you guys is going to betray me. Knowing that that would cause sorrow. I mean, God would never do that, right? Cause me sorrow? Yeah, he would. He had a purpose even in that. Phil did a great job a couple weeks ago just talking about this illusion that was out there in, in Jesus' day when they came across the blind man and the disciples said, who sinned? This guy or, I mean, who, this guy or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, nobody sinned. God sometimes allows sorrow or grief or suffering to enter into our life. Sometimes it's just to bring him glory. Sometimes it's to lead us to repentance. Remember the guy that, uh, the rich young ruler who was a little bit cocky and came to Jesus and said, hey, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he walked away sad. Jesus caused him sorrow, but it also said that he loved him. In love, Jesus will cause us sorrow if it leads us to godly repentance, if it leads us to, to move away from things that have our heart, to move away from th idols that are controlling us and keeping us away from either obeying or remaining or being in the presence of God and enjoying God. And God will allow that to take place. You bet he will. He has to. He loves us too much to leave us in our muck and in our mire 
just in all of our addictions and all of our compulsions and all of our ways that we cope and all of the things that we chase after, that's not love to let us stay in that. It is loving, however, to say things and, and allow us to feel sorrow if it means we're gonna come out of that because those things are horrible for us. It's an act of love. Sorrow is a mercy from God. Yeah, one of you guys is gonna betray me. And the disciples' response, their, their question, is it I, Lord, suggests that they believed it might have been them, to their credit. Of course, they've been walking with Jesus for a while now, and he'd rebuke them so many times, they had concluded, I wouldn't put it past me to betray him. As a matter of fact, in a matter of hours, they were going to scatter, man. Some of them were going to deny they even knew him. People, the potential for unfaithfulness dwells in every disciple then and now. And that may be hard to hear. The potential for unfaithfulness lies in all of us. As a matter of fact, Jesus was about to institute the Lord's Supper. The whole reason they're celebrating the Passover is because of the sin that needed to be atoned for. So why would we ever think, yes, that blood was sufficient. Yes, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for our sin, but that does not mean that we are not influenced by the power of sin in our life. The good news, the gospel is that even though we're influenced as Christians, as believers, by the power of sin, and when we give in, and we do, that sin we are not going to be penalized for because Jesus' blood was sufficient to pay the penalty. Amen? Amen? But we still struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin. It's a good question to ask Jesus, is it me? Did I do that? Is it I, Lord? It's a humbling question. I don't, I don't want to deny Jesus Christ. I don't want to betray him. I don't want to turn my back on him. I don't want to sin. But I do, and so do you. And it's a healthy question, guys. Is it me? At that point, you thought, well, Jesus would have gone, no, no, no. No, it's not you guys. It's okay. Thanks for asking, though. Good job there. He didn't say that. They said, is it I, Lord? And Jesus answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, they all dipped their hand in the dish. That's not helping the situation here, Jesus. To dip your hand in the dish in that culture was a total act of friendship. So he was basically saying, one of my friends is going to betray me. And they're like, oh my gosh. It's so hard to grasp and admit as believers 
that the potential is there. But isn't it comforting and hopeful to know that even as believers, because that blood was pure, because his sacrifice was acceptable to God, because of Jesus Christ's death atoned for our sin, even though we sin, we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus wants us to feel the weight of that. He wants us to feel the sorrow for our sin so that we'll move away from it and come back into Him. He allows us to feel sorrow for our sin because it reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of who He is and what He accomplished. And we can receive grace upon grace upon grace and we can experience forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. And none of it, none of it has to ever separate us from the love of God. It doesn't matter. That is covered. Amen. So if He allows us to feel of sorrow, it's because he wants us to get rid of the things that are getting in the way of that intimate connection he so desires with him. Amen? Christians struggle with sin, but that's a good thing that God allows us to feel the weight of that. But there's another thing in this passage that… Uh, I know is really hard. I work with so many people. I work, I talk, I counsel a lot of different people. And you, and you read something like this and you ask yourself, what's to say I'm not going to end up like Judas? Right? I mean, everyone's sinning in the room. How do I know I'm not going to end up like Judas? I cannot stand here and tell you you're not. That would be irresponsible of me as a pastor to give you some false assurance that I have no idea and I can't stand behind and I would not ever do that. But there's something in the text today that jumped out at me that I want to show you, and I'm wondering if maybe this would help. I want you to notice something about Judas. Yeah, he asked the same question. See that? He asked the same question with a little bit different twist. He said, is it I, rabbi? That word rabbi just means teacher. I mean, honorable teacher. Respectful teacher, but it means teacher. Did you notice the way the disciples asked the question? Is it I, Lord? You know what that word means? Have you ever looked up that word? The word Lord, among other things, means one to whom a person belongs. Do you belong to Jesus this morning? That blood, with that blood, he purchased us. We belong to him. And he is a sweet savior, a sweet Lord. Or is he a teacher to you? 
People, you could be a theologian, the theologian of all theologians and know everything in the world about Jesus Christ and know everything in the world and the Bible and not belong to Jesus. Do you know that? Do you belong to him? Is he the Lord of your heart? When you sin, is it, oh, well, I tried, you know, I'm only human. Or is there a conviction, which is a gift from God? Is there a conviction from the Holy Spirit? Is there this gut-wrenching, anxious tension? Because you don't want to do that, but you do that, and there's this turmoil, and there's this conflict, and there's this repentant even though you just did the same thing yesterday, right? I can't be a Christian. I keep struggling with this thing. Well, wait a minute. Do you belong to Jesus? There's no sin that we could ever sin that's going to get us kicked out of the kingdom if we belong to Jesus. He will allow us to feel the weight of that sin. He will allow us to feel the sorrow of that sin. He will even allow us to grieve the loss of that sin. Why? Because he wants that grief and that sorrow to turn our heart away from that and toward him. The fact that you sin and are grieved by it is not a sign that you don't belong to Jesus, but it's a sign of the conviction that you do, potentially. Do you belong to Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? And God, as we, as we wrap this up now, I want to point out one last thing. People, even the betrayal fulfills God's sovereign plan. Did you know that? Even the betrayal, even Judas's betrayal. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wait a minute, how can it be foretold and <clears throat> a definite plan of the foreknowledge of God <clears throat> and then they're accountable and they're responsible for their actions? Because the temptation here is to say, well, if God ordained the whole thing, then it really wasn't Judas's fault. Really? I'm not going to be able to explain this perfectly, but these two things are true, what I'm about to say. God has his purposes, but he works without violating human freedom or human responsibility. I don't know how that can reconcile down here, and it's just true. God is sovereign over every decision, God is sovereign over every molecule, every atom in the universe. And at the same time, men are responsible for their choices and their decisions. That's why Jesus said it would have been better had Judas not been 
born. But we don't have to be like Judas. Amen? The blood of the lamb was sufficient even to cleanse Judas. But he did not move toward Jesus. He did not belong to Jesus. Yes, later, it seemed that he was remorseful. He even threw the silver all over the place, but it was not a godly remorse. Or Jesus would have surely forgave him. It wasn't. But for you and I, we have the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, whose blood is pure, whose blood is perfect to atone for the sins of people like you and I. That's the gospel. That's the good news that God redeems sinners through the sovereign Lamb of God. John the Baptist knew who he was. Years earlier in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew what was coming. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is the Lamb of God in his life. Jesus lived a perfect, in perfect submission to the will of God. He never sinned once. If he had, he would have been disqualified and his blood would not have been sufficient. But he led a perfect life. He obeyed the law perfectly, which qualified him to be that Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. In his death, Jesus quenches God's wrath against sin. And if we have that blood, that blood of that Lamb covering the doorpost of our heart, covering us, that sin will not kill us. That sin will not separate us from God because we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Do you see this? Do you see this? We don't have to end up like Judas. In his resurrection, Jesus conquers sin and conquers death, and he lives in the hearts of those who follow him. He lives in the hearts of me and you, his disciples, and he now continues to cleanse us and purify us and sanctify us because day by day by day, he wants us to become more and more and more like him and on point in his mission. Because you know what? There's a lot of lost people out there. There's a lot of people that are not under the blood of the lamb and God loves them and he wants to use us to make an impact in their life. That's the church, amen. But for us today, may we remember that Jesus' blood was pure and perfect and sufficient to pay the penalty for my sin and yours, and we don't have to be afraid in humility to come before the Lord and say, is it I? Did I do that? I don't wanna do that. Show me, show me my sin and show me your grace. Amen, God, thank you today. Thank you for, for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid to come before you. Thank you for being our redeemer, Jesus. Thank you for ordaining every detail in your life and ordaining every detail of your death. And thank you for conquering death. Thank you for offering your blood on the behalf 
on behalf of sinners like me and my brothers and sisters. May we go today, may we move today, may we trust you. May we go about our, our life, may we go about our relationships knowing that you're in control. You're in sovereign control. And that everything has a purpose, even our sorrow. Go before us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.